The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. What we've seen over the last 10 years is law enforcement pushing hard on trying to control end-to-end encryption and law enforcement pushing hard more recently on the CSAM issue. But we haven't seen, at least from the U.S., efforts to push on end-to-end encryption from the national security folks. And in fact, we've seen many national security people say end-to-end encryption is particularly important in light of all the nation-state kinds of theft of data, theft types of attacks, and so on. So that's the context I've seen this this particular effort in. I'm Tia Sewell, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 2nd, 2022. On May 11th, the European Commission announced a new proposal designed to combat online child sexual abuse material. The new proposal has drawn notable criticism from major member states, especially Germany, and has raised concerns about the national security risks that it could create. To talk through the issues at hand, Jacob Schultz recently sat down with two experts, each of whom wrote Lawfare articles about the EU's proposal back in June. Here's Jacob's conversation with Robert Gorwa, postdoctoral research fellow at the WZB Berlin Social Science Center, who specializes in platform governance and transnational digital policy issues, and Susan Landau, bridge professor of cybersecurity and policy in the Fletcher School and at the School of Engineering, Department of Computer Science at Tufts University. They discussed the European proposal in the context of child sexual abuse material, as well as within other contexts, such as that of terrorism. And they walked through the practical, legal, and technical implications of the draft regulation, as well as what its evolution reveals more broadly about policymaking in the digital sphere. It's the Lawfare podcast for August 2nd, 2022. Europe doubles down on client-side scanning. All right, so Susan, I think the best place to start here is Explain to us what client-side scanning is. Client-side scanning is when you look at content on a user's device and scan it for prohibited content. It could be child sexual abuse material. It could be political material. It could be any sort of material. But you're scanning the material on the device before it leaves the, the user's device. And so it has a lot of privacy implications. And Robert, anything you'd want to add to that just as a basic explanation? We'll move to some examples in a second. Sure. No, I mean, I think here generally I'll defer to Susan's vast expertise on this issue. I would maybe just say that there seems to be a little bit of a distinction that's emerging, at least in the policy space, between proposals that are trying to 
incentivize forms of client-side scanning kind of at the app level. So within apps that users popularly use, like WhatsApp or Telegram or Signal, uh, versus ones that are happening more at the OS operating system level, like the proposal that Apple announced last year. Yeah, that's a perfect segue. But just to concretize this a bit for people, Susan, I, I know you did a bunch of work in connection with the release of the Apple proposal. Could you just describe to us you know, the basics of, of what that was meant to be so people have an idea of what we're talking about when we say client-side scanning? So Apple had two different systems that it was proposing to do. One was that it was going to look at photos that were delivered to children. So there were children under 18 and children under 13 with a slight difference between the two. Photos that were delivered to children on family sharing plans. And if the photos included photos either being sent or being sent to the child or from the child that included naked parts of bodies, uh, warning the child in the case of under 13, warning the child about the photo and saying that if you choose to actually send the photo or receive the photo, then we'll need to inform your parents. For children between 13 and 18, they simply said, this is a photo with some naked parts. Do you still want to see it? Or do you still want to send it? That was the first one. The second part of Apple's plan was for anybody who was planning to load photos up to iCloud, the photos, any photos that were to be loaded up were to be scanned for CSAM images. And if a certain number did appear to have known CSAM, then Apple would scan the photos again once they were in iCloud using a different algorithm to check whether or not, in fact, they really were CSAM. If the photos both times appeared to be CSAM, then uh, then a human would actually scan them. And if they were CSAM, then they would be reported. And those were the two ways that that Apple was planning to implement this. Apple did not implement either. Apple decided to do the first one, but in a much more limited way, simply to inform children under 18 that the photos that they were either sending or receiving had naked aspects to them, but not any of the reporting to parents. And Apple apparently abandoned the second project without ever making a public announcement of that. Robert, you reference in, in the piece that you've written for Lawfare similar but slightly different industry efforts to, to voluntarily accomplish some of the things that this this EU proposal that we'll we'll touch on later on was seeking to do. So the first of those being the Microsoft Photo DNA project. Could you talk a bit about what that is and, and what it's seeking to do and, and why we might think of it as like an interesting relevant example? Yeah, so I'll maybe flag just as a first point here that actually most of my expertise in this area is coming from the broader content moderation space. So I've written a paper that has looked at the use of similar technologies in areas like copyright and um, violent extremism slash terrorism. So I'm not a child safety expert, but I'm someone who's a policy observer and someone who's interested in the law and politics of um client-side scanning and automated moderation more broadly. So basically in all three of these domains, and I think if we look empirically, copyright is actually the area where this kind of first develops through initiatives like uh, Content ID, which was developed by YouTube in the mid to late 2000s. And these are basically voluntary systems that companies implement 
usually as a result of some kind of stakeholder pressure. So in the case of copyright, it was rights holders, Hollywood, Motion Picture Movie Association, and other actors. In the case of child safety, it was um, civil society groups that are working on child safety issues uh, in the UK, in Europe, and the US. And these types of systems basically involve hash matching. So I guess this is the missing piece uh, to this discussion. So we have, on one hand, we have the way that we might be deploying certain technologies on the device. So this is the idea of client-side scanning. But there's also the idea of hash matching, which is how this seems to work in practice in the cloud um, currently, and it has been going on for, I guess, the last 10 years or so in various domains. So something like photo DNA uh, was initially developed by a group of computer scientists the most known one is Hani Farid, who is at Dartmouth, affiliated also with Marcus Hauf Research. Um, so with a mix of research and industry interests, groups developed these types of automated systems, which basically allowed the upload of certain types of material, of certain types of content, in a way that then they would be analyzed in a kind of complicated, but maybe we can just summarize as mathematical or statistical or cryptographic way so that a fingerprint is taken of this content. And the classic first use case of this was images. But as Susan has written in her latest Lawfare piece, actors are increasingly being incentivized to use these in other contexts like video. Basically, the main advantage of this technique of hash mashing is that it's a lot cheaper in terms of computational resources to be able to kind of scan for fingerprints of specific content. So you're not looking pixel by pixel to try to compare a video to, for example, another video or an image to another existing image that we know, for example, is copyrighted material or, for example, has been confirmed by um, some third party or law enforcement to be child sexual abuse material. Instead, we're looking for basically fingerprints. So we're matching short hashes. These are often strings that are relatively short and easy to compute. So that's the underlying technology. Through regulatory proposals that we're seeing in various contexts, these things are increasingly being rolled out worldwide, I guess. This is something that major platforms, the Facebook, the Googles, the YouTubes, Microsoft, and other firms that deal with large quantities of user-generated content have been deploying voluntarily uh, for the past at least five, six, seven years. But increasingly, they're being kind of called upon by various regulators and stakeholders to do this in a legal way. And I think it's really interesting to talk about the European case and exactly why this happened. Part of the reason why we're getting this new European law, which I hope we'll talk about today, is because technically doing this voluntarily might actually be illegal in Europe under existing data protection frameworks. So the reason that we have this new European proposal for a counter child sexual abuse material regulation is because there's a pre-existing privacy regulation called e-privacy, which predates GDPR, which basically potentially poses interesting legal problems for firms that are doing this voluntarily at the behest of civil society and other advocates. So basically, a lot of the new regulatory proposals that we're seeing in Europe are trying to kind of solidify this legal basis and also move beyond it in an environment where civil society advocates in the child safety and countering child abuse environment are arguing that the current status quo is, is a, the voluntary status quo is insufficient.
I would add one small piece to this, which is the way the perceptual hashing works is it doesn't require an exact match. So if, for example, the scene is slightly changed or the picture is cropped, there's a match and that works very well. And that's how, for example, the copyrighted material was first found, but it also works for child sexual abuse material. And just to footstomp something that, that both of you said, and you, you guys correct me if, if I'm wrong here, but this is not, we're talking about this technology because of the, the European proposal in the context of child sexual abuse material. But it, this is also something that's been used for, as you've both said, copyright, but then the, there's also the, the terrorist context, right? It, am I right that this is this is something that we're talking about from here on out in a very specific context, but is not just limited to child sexual abuse material. That's correct. Robert is absolutely right that it started as a way to recognize snippets of copyrighted material appearing in YouTube videos and, and, and the like, but it has been used quite effectively in removing terrorist films. That is uh, all of these horrible real-time videos of people carrying out terrorist acts, which they then upload to YouTube, are being removed exactly by this type of matching. That's right. So I think a key point, which Susan, you and your collaborators have been raising in some of the work you've done around this, is that this is a fairly general purpose technology. So theoretically, you could have a hash matching system for pretty much anything. And any kind of images that you add to a database and use to basically detect in this way could be blocked by the system. So in a paper that I did with my colleagues in 2020, looking at copyright, uh, the violent extremism case, and also toxic speech slash online hate speech, we found that platforms are already deploying these systems in a pretty wide range of areas. So if today you're on Facebook and you're uploading anything to Facebook, so whether it be a text in a status update, audio, video, images, in the kind of few seconds before upload, that is being hashed uh, and matched both for copyrighted content and for terrorist content, as well as for child abuse content. So there's multiple databases. Photo DNA is, is one of them, the child sexual abuse one. But there's also one that's managed by an industry consortium called the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism, another interesting organization that we can talk a little bit about. So yeah, this is just kind of an interesting area of I guess, automated content governance that a lot of users don't even realize is there because it's kind of operating behind the scenes secretly. And Robert brought up a very interesting point because he said toxic forms of content. And of course, what a toxic form of content is, is decided by the, the person running the technology. So while we're talking about terrorist videos and child sexual abuse material, there are parts of the world which view political protest as toxic content. So that is all really helpful context to to get us to the thing that both of you wrote your lawfare articles about. So Robert, I think maybe we'll we'll start with you here. Describe to us what exactly this EU proposal is and and maybe also talk a bit about how you alluded to this earlier how just the, the mere existence of it is something of note, right? It's a shift in the way that that countries are and governments are thinking about this. So this new regulation is very generally titled Laying Down Rules to Prevent and Combat Child Sexual Abuse. And as I mentioned earlier, it's part of the commission's effort not just to legally justify the status quo, which currently, as far as voluntary measures by companies in this space go, is actually a little bit ambiguous due to current European data protection rules, 
but it's also an effort to expand upon it in the long term. So the European Commission is the bureaucratic policymaking branch of the EU. It's super complicated. Even tech policy watchers in the EU, like myself, don't fully understand how it works. But it has more than 20 policymaking departments, which are called director generals. So one of the main things I was trying to highlight in my piece is that this proposal, interestingly, it doesn't come from the same space in the European Commission that usually we associate with working on digital policy. So that one is called DG Connect. And this proposal instead came from the Directorate General Migration and Home Affairs, or DG Home. And this is an area of the commission that usually makes policy on migration, on border security, and on other kind of security and national security issues. So I think this is an important piece of this puzzle. And it's part of the reason why arguably this proposal is such a divergence from the other tech-related, online content-related regulatory proposals we're seeing right now. But basically, the argument that the commission lays out or DG Home lays out in the explanatory memorandum for this regulation is that the existing voluntary measures, which, by the way, as we have mentioned, are already a little bit legally ambiguous and in some member states in the EU are already really controversial. Those don't go far enough and aren't wide enough across the tech sector. So they want to go further. And One of the things I was highlighting is that there's a bit of a tension in the draft when you read it in the sense that its core seems to be based on mandatory risk assessments. And actually, there's a way to read this draft in a way that is fairly reasonable. Um, So platforms operating in Europe would be required to conduct assessments to various risks that their services pose for child safety and child sexual abuse material. And then the draft says that they would have to take reasonable measures to mitigate the risks. So these are this would involve procedures like creating an official European clearinghouse for content, something like the National Center for Missing and Exploiting Children in the US, although interestingly, probably with a closer government connection than NICMIC does in the US. And it also kind of it lays out rules around combating three broad categories of content, which I think maybe Susan will talk about. But just quickly to your question as to what is specifically interesting and new here, the fact that this is shifting from a voluntary kind of more collaborative mode to one where these risk assessments are going to be mandatory is in itself a notable shift. And there is a general turn in this regulation where the center of gravity is shifting a little bit away from industry and towards government in the sense that this is going to, um, in the sense that this EU regulator basically will be a formal government entity and not a independent organization, or at least so it seems so far. It seems like the hash sharing database, whatever um, form it will take in the end, will actually be housed within this entity, so not within a third party independent organization or within firms. So this alone is a notable development, I think. And there's a lot we can say about Yeah, what we think is actually going to happen in the long term with this regulation, there's already been a lot of controversy around it, a lot of pushback, but maybe that's a future discussion here. Susan, we'll talk about, you know, your specific and and Robert's specific, you know, problems and and things you see that might be awry with this. But anything you'd like to add to that just as a means of introducing the proposal? So I would say that if I take a step back, it, of course, talks about ways to access the content and hidden within it, even though it explicitly says we're not attacking end-to-end encryption, you can't actually look at the content. We don't have good techniques 
for looking at the content if the content is encrypted. And we've seen the same interaction happening in the United States. After two crypto wars, we suddenly find the, the second crypto war expanding in the United States to child sexual abuse material, and that's a change in the last few years. So another way to view this, uh, which is separate from the discussion that Robert just had, is that perhaps it is also an attempt to get at end-to-end encryption, and that's also a big concern. To add on to Susan's point there, basically this law is talking about industry partners or the regulated industry that are in scope of this regulation having to fight against three broad categories of content. And this is extant child abuse imagery, right? So these are things that could feasibly be hashed because this is content that is already known and can be matched against existing content or another instant of this content in the future. Then it wants to increase, I guess, the fight against new content, which doesn't exist. So basically, it seems to be suggesting that industry needs to deploy some kind of predictive measures to find new instances of child sexual abuse content. And again, the technology for this is really unproven and probably quite dubious from a technical perspective. And then the third bucket of content, and this is definitely the spiciest part of the draft, is a provision about what are called grooming messages. So the idea here is that companies will be expected or required by law to detect and mitigate against forms of content that might in the future lead to potential child sexual abuse or child sexual abuse material. So this is actually, you know, the most controversial and really the part of the draft that has the biggest implications for end-to-end encryption, because it seems to me to most clearly implicate texts. So not just images, not just videos and other things that are shared via apps, but the content of messages themselves in a direct user-to-user way. So there's been lots of activity um, and lots of discussion and analysis of this proposal from folks like Susan, but as well, the broader cryptographic community. And I think as it is right now, and Susan, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think the consensus seems that there's basically no way to do this in a way that wouldn't compromise end-to-end encryption. So this is really, you know, a major privacy and security concern in the long term. That's right. The argument that one would make is there's no way to do this efficaciously. We don't have the technology, not only uh, even for recognizing images and videos efficaciously, that is to say, there are ways to do adversarial attacks on the perceptual hashing systems so that they won't be efficacious. And once they're not efficacious, then they're not proportionate and proportionate is a requirement in the European context. So this is problematic both from a technical point of view as well as a legal point of view. And it seems to be a proposal that did not really take into account where the technology is and what the implications for policy are as a result of where the technology is. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 
36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So maybe a lot to unpack there, and maybe the best place to start is, is on the technical side. So Susan, you have written a, a nice lawfare piece sketching out the, the nature of your objections to this. Could you walk us through what those are and, and what the particular pinch points you see are? Sure. So the first issue is, can we do this? And Robert and I have both talked about technology that is in use to recognize child sexual abuse material in both photos and videos, and also to recognize terrorist material in, in videos. One of the problems here is that there's a high number of false positives and false negatives. So we've had plenty of academic papers that show how to do uh, false positives. The technology shows that there is CSAM in a photo or a video, but in fact there isn't. Or false negatives, the, the technology doesn't flag the CSAM that is actually there. But academic papers are academic papers. The question is, what happens when this technology rolls out automated, whether on the server side or the client side, and dastardly parties have an interest in making the technology work badly, whether to implicate somebody in having CSAM and make it look as if they have CSAM when they don't, or to allow CSAM to to roll through the system without being caught. And the fact is that, that security attacks only get worse. That is, you go from an academic paper that is hard to create the attack and so on, to a working attack very, very quickly, a working attack at scale. And that means that we will have lots of false positives and false negatives in the system. Another problem is that it turns out that only 84% of CSAM images and 91% of CSAM videos, they appear only once so that there is no easy way to recognize them uh, because they're not in the database. Part of the proposal, part D of the proposal says that the uh, technology will have to recognize unknown CSAM. I don't know how you recognize unknown CSAM. And it's not just that I don't know how you recognize unknown CSAM, but that's uh, that's like porn. I know it when I see it. It's a human judgment. Is it two children fooling around, two naked toddlers in a bathtub fooling around, or is it CSAM? That's very hard to do when we don't have technical solutions. So to legislate a requirement when there aren't technical solutions seems crazy. All of this points to a problem with efficacy and if you don't have efficacy, as I said earlier, then you can't possibly have a solution that's legally proportionate because to be proportionate, you have to be capturing a very high proportion of the bad stuff and letting through virtually all of the good stuff. And, and we don't have technology to do that yet. It's not clear we ever will because, in fact, we don't know what it means to say something is CSAM. What is the legal or technical meaning of CSAM? There is no such definition. So this proposal is badly flawed, inherently badly flawed. 
And Susan, you know, at listening to your previous Lawfare podcast appearances and, and reading some of your previous work, in some ways, this, what you just said here sounds sort of familiar, right? Like there's this surveillance technology and everything else aside, there's this core efficacy problem, right? What we want it to do, it can't do. Am, am I right that that's sort of this feels like a familiar movie in some ways. Yes, it feels like a remarkably familiar movie. We heard about golden keys and exceptional access for end-to-end encryption. And while it's really flattering to be told, you Silicon Valley people are really smart, uh, surely you can come up with a solution. That's a nice statement, but it ignores the reality of the technology. Uh, I described in my law for a piece that the the way the EU proposal is written is as if you're sending a a spacecraft to Jupiter to do some mining and then bring back precious metals when we have no idea how to get a spacecraft to Jupiter, land safely, mine the metals, and bring it back. And the idea is we'll figure this out while the spacecraft is on its way. That's just crazy. And Robert, from a legal perspective, what are the things that, that you see as, as the real pinch points here? And, and what can we sort of look out for moving forward? So to follow on from what Susan has already mentioned, which I think is is very much on point, the thing that interests me here as, I guess, a policy or governance researcher is the effects that will follow a shift of this type of regulatory approach out of the realm of the more collaborative and voluntary and into one where things are mandated by sanctions or fines or other types of formalized legal pressure. So I think we don't really know what happens yet when you have a hash matching system that's really underpinned by this kind of heavy legal pressure in this way. And I think one of my main concerns is that you're raising the stakes a lot for false positives in this kind of system. So as of right now, again, and think speaking broadly here across copyright and terrorism and the child abuse context, if a match results in content being taken down, if it results in strikes being taken against an account, you know, the stakes here as far as negative repercussions, while still high, are arguably a little bit lower than, for example, if the governance outcome that happens from a match that is happening on the device in WhatsApp, for example, due to a photo that someone has been sent that maybe adversarially has been attacked. So it's just an image that looks like anything, but the way it has been constructed is that a hash of this photo looks like a hash of CSAM. The system will be really opened up to adversarial attacks, especially I think against political opponents, journalists, activists, these kinds of groups. So that's one of my main concerns, I guess more broadly, and maybe, you know, I should stay in my lane, but As someone who's not a child safety expert, I do worry that there are some parallels here to some broader conversations we've seen societally in other areas in this kind of focus on tech solutionism more generally, right? So in conversations, for example, as on, on sexual abuse more widely, where the discourse in certain cases was being shifted by security folks and safety groups to this idea of like the unknown attacker, the man jumping from the bush in the dark, when empirically you see that the huge majority of abuse that actually is happening, the huge majority of sexual violence that is actually happening is from acquaintances within relationships from people that victims know. So just to give one statistic that I found from uh, RAIN, which is the largest anti-sexual violence group in the U.S., the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, 
93% of juvenile victims of sexual abuse knew the perpetrator, according to one of their studies, right? So this is, again, a really, really difficult and, again, sensitive, controversial, high-stakes area. But I do worry that legislators, when they're blazing forward and trying to do what they conceive to be technologically neutral regulation. So this is maybe just one quick point to mention that the reason that this law is so vague in terms of how it's actually going to be implemented is because they're actively trying to craft something that is technologically neutral. They're saying that the space is moving so fast. We don't know what technology or tool industry develops to handle this problem for us. We don't care if it's hash matching. We don't care if it's some kind of deep learning or other sophisticated model. We just want this problem off our hands and we want to be able to say that we're doing something to address this. I would add one more thing to what Robert just said, which is we're talking about child sexual abuse material, but of course the real issue is child sexual abuse and separating the two, it's not clear that it makes as as much sense as this sort of clean technical law that is not achievable technically and maybe isn't the right solution at all. So it, it makes me wonder, you know, listening to both of you, and you both, you know, this is a, a big problem and, and something that you could sort of understand why policymakers want to tackle and want to, you know, get involved in for good or for ill. Is there a version of a, of a CSAM law that you would see as being, you know, beneficial, adequate, sufficiently, you know, privacy protective? Is there a way to do this that just isn't the way that this European proposal has has landed? Or is it the case that per se, government involvement in this space is, is leading down a road that we don't want to be going down? So I will take the answer a little far afield. And I've been struck in thinking about Ukraine and cybersecurity and the attacks on Ukraine and the fact that we haven't seen cyber attacks be as devastating as expected, part of the answer to that is that the tech companies have been working extremely well with governments to warn Ukraine about potential attacks and get patches out uh, and get patches to neighboring countries as well. And it is hard to imagine that working well in the context of 2013 when the Snowden disclosures happened and there was a real breach between the the tech community and and government. And so what I am arguing here is in fact working with the tech companies to work on what is achievable in a cooperative manner really has benefits. And this somewhat adversarial approach and saying you guys can tech the way out of it for what is a social problem is probably the wrong way to go. So, Robert, you you had mentioned at closer to the top that this came about in a sort of strange way. The the component of the European government that they came up with the proposal is a bit interesting and, and maybe not what people would expect. And you know, also I think for certain U.S. observers, there's an people have a particular attitude about the way that the EU goes about making tech policy. Does this? experience the, the the floating of this proposal, the way that it happened, the bureaucratic machinations or, or maybe lack thereof behind it, reflect anything to you more broadly about the way that the EU thinks about tech policy? Like, does this 
feel like a familiar story or does it does it behold any any broader lessons about the European approach? So one of the main reasons I was prompted to write this piece in the first place was that once the draft regulation came out in May, I was seeing a lot of frustrated folks in civil society, in the security community, who were, I think, very appropriately dissecting this proposal. But in many cases, it seemed like the space that they took that was to basically throw their hands up in the air and say, this is another piece of evidence that the EU basically has no idea what it's doing on technology regulation, right? It doesn't have any EU companies, European champions that are active in this space, and it just wishes that it would be this regulatory power, and it's just going to intervene willy-nilly without actually understanding the underlying technology. And in the piece, I tried to complicate this a little bit by basically saying, okay, Let's think about how the EU works. Let's look at the different pieces of the EU. Let's look at the actors that are driving this regulation. And let's see how that all fits together and that what, what that might tell us about this broader process. So one of the main points I wanted to mention is that because the EU is so large and so complicated and has so many pieces, there seems to be a way that if you're a really big, motivated transnational coalition with resources behind you, the EU structure is amenable to finding someone who will hear you out. So if it isn't the main digital regulators in Connect, if it isn't the folks who I would say are probably the number two department in terms of digital policy, which is the Directorate General on Justice, which was in charge of things like the hate speech code of conduct and the disinformation code of practice, well, then you can kind of move down the bureaucratic stack and find someone a security actor, for example, who is more amenable to your concerns. The other point there is that these coalitions are transnational and they tend to combine US and European and other actors that are trying to get access to European policymakers. And they do this very strategically because they know that any regulation that happens in the EU is going to have a global knock-on effect. So that's the first point. The second point, and this is maybe jumping to this question of what is going to happen with this law in the future. And it's maybe a little bit cynical, but there's an argument that is made in some European policy circles that the EU is very strategic in how it makes policy. So in a draft like this, we can kind of read between the lines and think maybe long-term after the whole negotiation process that happens after a regulation proposal, what do we think that the actors driving this are actually hoping to get? So if there's any good news to come out of this, I think it's safe to say that this proposal as it currently stands, I hope, has no chance of passing. There's too much opposition from other actors, including Germany. We can talk about this. But basically, there's a theory that the European Commission, when it makes policy, it will go further than it intends in the initial draft, and then it will kind of retreat to a softer position. So just to give you one specific example of this, there's been a theory floating around from some folks that I've seen talking about this bill who are very close EU policy watchers, that, for example, maybe one of the end goals of this regulation is to introduce some kind of filtering on some more limited aspects of group-based messaging. So whether or not this would be in the cloud or it'd be on the client side, this would be the idea that, okay, maybe we provide an exemption for one-to-one -one communication, but there are things that 
some of these platforms are doing that might be more closely described as like a broadcast medium. So I'm thinking here of things like huge telegram groups that have hundreds of thousands of users or huge WhatsApp groups. So maybe, you know, again, this is just speculation. There's been a theory floating around that maybe one of the main goals here is to try to get these types of wins into the law. So again, this isn't going completely all the way, but it's still potentially troubling. And Susan, does the experience of you know watching how this has evolved and, and where it might go, does, does this feel familiar to you in any respects? Does it feel like it reveals or, or highlights any any broader patterns of making tech policy that you've noticed over the years? Remarkably familiar. Just before the pandemic, I was in Europe talking to people in the EU about this issue, and we were making some of the points that we later made in the the more analytical paper, Bugs in Our Pockets, about the impossibility of using machine learning, that there would be problems of false positives, false negatives, and so on. And then, lo and behold, two and a half years later, out comes this full-blown proposal. And I would agree very much with Robert about the EU taking steps further than it really intends to go in order to, to push policy. I would also agree Robert didn't say it today, but he had it in his his lawfare piece about transatlantic influence. And I've seen that going way back to the original crypto wars with efforts in the OECD by the Americans to do key escrow, with efforts by the FBI in the mid-1990s about the Communications Assistance for Law Enforcement Act and that the Europeans should implement a similar act, which they then did do with problems for security, in fact. So I've seen this kind of, do we call it policy laundering coming through another country. The other part that I would like to mention is that when Robert mentioned perhaps there'd be an effort on group filtering, that of course plays with what India is trying to do and put controls on. Then of course it comes over to, well, maybe there can be an antitrust action on bringing together various types of messaging platforms that that Facebook is attempting to do. So I think there may be reaches in various ways, but there's also certainly that transatlantic policy laundering effort going on. And I'd finally like to add that what we've seen over the last 10 years is law enforcement pushing hard on trying to control end-to-end encryption and law enforcement pushing hard more recently on the CSAM issue. But we haven't seen, at least from the U.S., efforts to push on end-to-end encryption from the national security folks. And in fact, we've seen many national security people say end-to-end encryption is particularly important in light of all the nation-state kinds of theft of data, theft types of attacks, and so on. So that's the context I've seen this, this particular effort in. And Robert, you had alluded to a bunch of this in your previous answer, but maybe the best place to end is talk about what comes next. Like, what do you see happening to this this proposal as things go on and then as the you know months and years tick by? So one of the interesting things that we're already seeing is that there's been a lot of opposition to this draft regulation from major member states, especially Germany. So two weeks ago, Germany sent a letter to the European Commission, which had 61 pretty pointed bullet points, probably more than 100, 150 questions in it, basically 
looking at all dimensions of this proposal, how it would work in practice, what types of technologies will be deployed, how providers might fulfill obligations in this law if their services are end-to-end encrypted, and how this law would fit with existing and in-development European frameworks like the GDPR, General Data Protection Regulation, and the ongoing AI Act. So, you know, I think this is going to be a battleground, to be honest, and looking at what civil society organizations like European Digital Rights are already doing, it seems like in their advocacy, they're kind of gearing up for a mini Crypto Wars 3.0. So it's going to be really interesting. I also just saw that one of the major groups are part of this transatlantic coalition Susan mentioned, which is um, a mixed nonprofit slash company that works on CSAM detection tools called Thorn just announced that they had an open letter with apparently dozens of dozens of groups that are backing the the EU regulation. So there's going to be an interesting thing going on here where there will be basically two rival camps of civil society organizations duking it out. But we don't see this often. Yeah, maybe we saw a little bit of this on the previous debates around the terrorist content regulation, where you had civil society groups slash countering violent extremism organizations facing down with digital rights and, and privacy groups. But yeah, I think it's going to be it's going to be a big fight. But the one thing to mention is, at least as I alluded to earlier, if there's something to at least be grateful for, hopefully, if all goes well, there's enough spaces for del- deliberation within the European policy process that hopefully most of the most invasive parts of this law will be removed. Again, at the very least, I see it as highly likely that the current voluntary status quo will at the very least be entrenched in law. So that will mean that the the kind of temporary law, which was an update or amendment to the e-privacy regulation, which expired this year, it was a one-year derogation of that law. And again, even that was really highly contested by digital rights groups. So I feel at the very minimum, that's going to be enshrined in law. But it's very possible that, yeah, that that this law will go further. And again, it's hard to say exactly what will happen. We're seeing a trend broadly across areas, copyright, whether in the European Copyright Directive, terrorism through the European Terrorist Content Regulation, that there are more and more provisions and laws that are either explicitly or implicitly mandating so-called upload filters. So some kind of automated content detection and analysis. And with the entrance of the terrorist content regulation recently, this technically is actually already on the books in Europe. So the only thing that remains, I guess, right now is to see how this will actually be enforced in practice. And I don't think we actually have enough context as to what that's going to look like. So it's a bit of a mixed picture. I think on one hand, Critics uh, of this of this law and concerned cryptographic security and end-to-end encryption advocates in the e- in the U.S. can sleep at least a little bit more soundly, knowing that this law, as it currently stands, there's I'd say a zero percent chance of this actually passing as it is right now. That said, it's quite possible that some of the provisions that are enshrined in this, some parts of this framework as they're laid out, might go in, and it's part of a broader trend, as Susan mentioned towards formalizing and increasing law enforcement and government pressure on the private platforms in the realm of 
online content. And this is moving down the stack where it's not just happening at the top level on the cloud at the platforms, but it's kind of slowly, seemingly making a drift into our operating systems, into our devices, into infrastructure. And that is a great place to end. Thank you both so much. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.